Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. How's it going tonight, Will? Got a question for you, Matt. Okay, what you got? I just signed up for a half marathon at the end of May in Tennessee. What's the most unwise decision you made today? Oh, that is a very good question. You know, today I was slammed under so much work. I I think that I did not have the time to make any unwise decisions. So I somehow think that that might be the only good thing that comes from having too much work to actually be able to think. You couldn't get up to shenanigans today, is what you're saying. Yeah, pretty much. That, well, that, good for you. That time of year. That, that, that is a hell of a thing. T- Tennessee in the end of May, it's going to be a, a, a might bit warm, I think. Yeah, a little steamy. A little steamy. We're going to have to, we're going to have to hydrate and pace and uh, cross our fingers and hope to come in under two hours. We'll see how that goes knocking the nearest wooden surface as there are many of them in this podcasting closet where for those of you who listen to our bonus episodes it is considerably not as warm as it was when i recorded the one over the weekend when i was borderline incoherent and melting yeah i don't think he's gonna melt tonight but i'll keep an eye on him folks it's a pretty pleasant it's a pleasant night out i got some windows open air circulating it's gonna be a good time going to be a good episode because we're hitting one of the big ones tonight this week jason todd tier backer kyle still makes his pick and it's a whopper this week we take on the first half of nightfall the broken bat and two of the stories that led to one of the biggest bat events of all time as i said we're starting with two of the prologue pieces to nightfall in this case starting with the vengeance of bane this is batman the vengeance of bane number one the writer is Chuck Dixon, with pencils by Graham Nolan, inks by Eduardo Barreto, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Bill Oakley, and edited by Denny O'Neill and Scott Peterson. The cover date is January of 1993. Witness the origin of the man who will break the bat. Born into a life sentence, C. Bane rise from childhood to adulthood in Santa Prisca before coming to Gotham to defeat the man who embodies his fears, Batman. So we'll start off with the one of the normal things we do here. Um, yeah, Chuck Dixon, problematic creator, extreme Fucking fascist prick. Yeah, extreme right wing sympathies that make neither Will nor I terribly comfortable. And I don't think Graham Nolan, who works with him, is that much further away from him in his political leanings. The first time that this kind of came to at least my knowledge was right after Trump's inaugural address. We, you know, he drops the line, you know, American carnage, whatever the reference to Bain was. And somebody tracked down and interviewed both Dixon and Nolan. And they were like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. We're to- we're 100 percent behind this guy. So, yeah, that's that's why they can fuck themselves. Not not something that Will or I are, are going to throw our opinions behind to say the least. So this is the, not just origin, but the first appearance of Bane. Although Venom, the drug, had been introduced in the eponymous Venom arc of Legends of the Dark Knight. As one-shots go, this is 
pretty good, but there's some there's some stuff that we'll discuss. But I think as a thing to set up Bane as a threat, it does its job. Absolutely. And I enjoyed it more than sort of the other origin-ish story we got on tap for tonight, simply because this was a much more linear story. This was little baby Bane grows up to be medium-sized Bane, grows up to be big giant Bane, and then he sets out for Gotham. Like it's a very A to B to C story and it didn't need to be complicated. You know, the more you overtake the plumbing, the easier it is to stop up the drain. And I think we definitely had that in the other story, but this very simple, very straightforward, very readable. And the one thing that struck me is that I'd say in the modern continuity, the modern usage of Bane, you never, ever, ever, ever see him without the mask. And so that was interesting to see him in this book. And then maybe a little bit throughout Nightfall, unmasked Bane. Yeah, I can count on one hand the number of times we see him unmasked in that king run maybe two or three times and usually it's one or two panels before he masks again here it's a normal it's a normal thing for him to be out of the mask i would have been curious to see a little more explanation as to why he went with the luchador themed get up because it there's nothing in there but it's a good look and it works for the character yeah, it could have just been any mask, right? He's not hiding his identity. It's it's a very functional thing. It's holding the the pipes in, the tubes yeah. in. I feel in this in this package tonight, we are very much getting the space seed bane. This is the more interesting version of the character where he's he's not just a brute. We see him interacting with brutes later with uh, with Killer Croc, but this is a thinking reasonable rational bane at least in the fact that he's a psychopath murderer uh with designs on conquest but it's a character who can carry on a conversation and hold his own as kind of a philosopher warrior king and i don't think we see that later dixon's bane is that and gail simone did that with bane in her run on secret six But a lot of the Bane before and especially a lot of the Bane after is not. The New 52 Bane was not this. He was much more of a brute. And that was the vibe that came through in the Arkham games. And I think that's where a lot of those interpretations come from. Because when you think about Bane in mass media, you've got Batman and Robin. You've got the Arkham games. And the Bane in The Dark Knight Rises is fairly unrecognizable from comic book Bane. The name is the same, but that's kind of it. So this is a much more interesting version of the character. And his origin, while, I mean, I didn't do any research on this. I I would be curious how realistic any of that was. The whole follows his father's life sentence because his father couldn't have been imprisoned thing is that strikes me as pretty colonial in its concept it's like oh look at these backwards people on this island they would do that kind of thing but it's certainly a resonant origin and it creates a character 
who has a strong counterpoint to Batman, to Bruce Wayne, who was born and raised in the lap of luxury while Bane was raised in a prison and spent. It's no excuse to become a monster. Mm -hmm. I should know. And he who spent, what is it, about a decade in the hole? I don't figure out how anyone could spend 10 years in solitary confinement and come out anything short of completely insane. Yeah, that's one of the more, and this this is going to be the stupider thing I've said in a while, uh, that's one of the more unreasonable parts of this year comic book because what we know of modern you know, incarceration, solitary confinement is a brutal thing. And it is very, uh, very easy to lose your sanity uh, in those type of conditions. So yeah, uh, 10 years of solitary confinement, you're not coming out of that in one piece. It gets hand waved away with he develops his own type of meditation to stay sane. And I'm like, I don't think that's how that works. Mm, No. And if you want to believe the worst about chuck dixon which i do that could be looked at uh, in sort of a way that oh jail is not that bad solitary confinement is not that bad bane could do 10 years i I think very much we see that with one of the talking heads in nightfall as like a straw man for liberal criminal justice reform so i'm reading the very worst into it at any chance i get not an unfair view also and another thing that we get here that is left out of a lot of the later versions of bane are we get his three henchmen who are at times both interesting and deeply underwritten it's like okay they're bird trog and zombie and bird gets the most definition as this you know former gotham mobster who was arrested in santa prisca he has a bird falcon he's into birds he, he's you know this kind of slick guy but then there's trog who's this big hulking guy who looks like he's some sort of genetic throwback but it was also an electronics whiz because he makes the venom injector and then there's zombie who's tall and cadaverous and who can throw knives and is a pharmaceuticals guy they're visually very distinct. Like you don't forget those three characters, but we don't get a ton of who they are other than, well, they're Bird, Trog, and Zombie. I think it's at least important that Bird exists. Like Bane has to have a reason to have designs on Gotham. He has to have a reason to want to go there and become emperor of uh, of the city. And if you could think about being incarcerated for all this time, hearing stories about the city, hearing stories about Batman, like that part of his anger uh, and plans for vengeance against Batman, that all kind of makes sense because, you know, he's been listening to this stories about this character in the city for years. And you gotta, you gotta have designs on what you're going to do when you get out. There, there are some continuity issues to this. The fact that Zombie doesn't seem to age from the point that Bane is born until the point that Bane escapes 20 plus years later. And almost the same can be said for Trog. He doesn't encounter Bird until he comes out of the hole. So he's 16 or 17 then. So that 
works a little better, but there's some stuff here that's kind of like, okay, that's hand wavy with comic book stuff. Dixon didn't at any point go for some of the lazier prison stuff. Like the one guy who is after young Bane is after young Bane to use him as a mule to move contraband. He's creepy and sleazy and you probably could have easily read some prison sexual assaults into what he was planning, but it's not anywhere near the surface. So like, it would have been way easy to make some sort of really unpleasant comment right on the surface and get away from it. And it doesn't get away with it. And that doesn't happen here. Yeah. And rape was kind of the MO for a lot of these creators in the, you know, early to mid nineties, maybe because this is still a code book. They didn't, they didn't do that, but if they shied away from that intentionally, then I will, I will give them kudos, but again, no free passes for Chuck Dixon. I do really like the art. I'm a a fan or as much of a fan as I can be for when knowing that he's somewhat problematic of Graham Noel. I'm a fan of his art anyway. I think it's a very clean style. He's got good motion. He's got good storytelling. And his characters have a a distinct look to them, or they are distinct from one another. Yeah, I think, like I said earlier, this for me is better than the, uh, the other story, in part because of the art. The other book is just so busy. There's so much going on. There's so much, for lack of a better uh, phrase, visual clutter. This is very clean. It's a look that as as of 93 was probably getting a little dated, a little kind of long in the tooth. But uh, I did enjoy the art here much more than, say, like I said, the other book. Dixon and Nolan will stick around on Detective for another number of years. They would have just come on to Detective shortly before this. I believe their first issue together, Dixon came on first and was with Tom Lyle for a couple of arcs. And then Dixon and Nolan did 650 and then some alternating arcs. And then were the regular creative team starting with Nightfall and going for at least through the early 700s. So there's a long time that these guys work on these books and then they came back and did a Bane miniseries a, a few years ago they did uh, an original graphic novel called the Joker Devil's Advocate uh, they, they have a lot of history as a creative team and it's interesting rereading this book with the knowledge of Bane's parentage because you eventually do find out who's ba- who Bane's father is and he is a character who's an established character And reading it, it's like, oh, okay, that is a reference to that. That's that's not not bad. That is some some groundwork being laid. And we'll eventually get to the story where we learn who Bane's father is. So I'm not sure if I want to spoil it right now. And it's a character that I don't Uh, think. hmm? No, 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 go. You finish your thought. It's a character I don't think you probably have encountered anywhere, Will, because he's a character who hasn't appeared in a number of years. Interesting. Um, when do we find that out? We find that out in Gotham Knights, probably sometime in the early 2000s. 
uh, when Scott Beatty, who would occasionally co-write things with Dixon, became the regular writer on Gotham Knights, he brings Bane back. And again, it's a more Dixonian Bane because Bane comes in with a number of suspects of people who were in Santa Prisca around the time of his conception, who were wanted by the government. And one of them was Thomas Wayne, who had gone to do a Doctors Without Borders type thing. That's an interesting direction. And it's, it's not Thomas Wayne, obviously, but he yeah, shows yeah, up yeah. at Wayne Manor like, hey, you might be my brother. <laughs> Sorry for your back and everything. Yeah, my bad. Big brother roughing on little brother. It happens. Kind of like how uh, Cartman made Scott Tinderman eat his dad and it turned out to be Carmen's dad. Yes. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Dude, it'll kill your parents. Possibly the greatest South Park episode of all time. Scott Tinderman must die. I just watched the rewatch the, the Red Badge of Gainus. That's right up there. Butter's very own episode. It was the one where they have to take the, the video cassette back to the, the one that they think is Lord of the Rings and is instead hardcore porn. Oh, yeah, like the worst porno ever that turns uh, Butters into a little golem. Yep, that one. Anything outside of the last 15 years, you know, yeah. you, you got you got some good arguments there. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, and the, the whole thing with the Bat of Fear and that dovetailing into Batman is a, is a cool visual and makes some sense in why it would obsess Bane in the way it does. Yeah, that scene reminded me of the uh, deleted scene from the Val Kilmer Batman where he winds up talking to like a giant bat or something. Yes. And and finally, we get when we get to Gotham... Oh, oh, right. Oh, we need to take a break for Shark Watch. Shark Watch? Because Bane on, on Santa Prisco, when someone dies in the prison, they chuck the bodies off of a cliff to waiting sharks. And we get to see Bane fight some sharks. Circle so, of life, man. Yep. So that, that's some shark watch. And in the end, we do see Bane get to Gotham and we do get an initial sort of confrontation. And we do see Bane coming in and being like, yeah, I'm not afraid of any of you guys. And him just wiping out mobsters because he can and he's Bane. I would not have minded any of... Tinian's additions to the bat roster had we had like a 60 page one shot explaining their backstory and why they would be important i i like this approach right if you know you're gonna if you know this character is gonna have a spotlight if you know you're gonna build this this massive story around him introduce him put some work into it it's why we eventually wound up really liking Miracle Molly because we got that secret origins after a bit. And it's like, oh, now we understand this character. Now we understand the stakes here. And it's why she became the most interesting of all of those characters because we did get that answer to who she is. But Matt, there was the gardener. I'll still take the gardener over uh, Ghostmaker any day of the week. Ugh. We do get the first hints here as well that the Venom is still taking its toll on Bane, which is something that we'll see play out over the course of Nightfall. But there is the fact that it's, Zombie says that he's be, 
you know, it, the night, the venom will make him dependent on the venom as time goes by. But that's just words. We'll see in the course of Nightfall that become more and more clear. Do you have anything else, Will? Uh, nothing left for me. So that means it's time to put Vengeance of Bane on the big board. So right now we have 117 stories on the big board. Number Gosh one. Almighty. Yep. Number one is Batman Year One. From Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Down to 25 is Tower of Babel, JLA 43 to 46. At number 50 is The Untold Legend of the Batman. At 69 for the children, it's Blades from Legends of the Dark Knight. Uh, number 75 is Batman Overdrive, the all-ages graphic novel. Number 100 is Beware of Poison Ivy from Batman Volume 1, number 181. And down to the bottom at 117 is White Knight. So I had some White Knight news today, by the way. Uh, do you know that there are multiple issues of the upcoming Red Hood book? Yeah, it's a two-issue miniseries, apparently. Christ almighty. So, so that's going to be ten issues total for this volume when you count the, those two. Back <sighs> us on Patreon to get us to read that for the podcast, folks. Christ. Anyway. So we're, we're, in, we're, we're definitely in, I think, top half territory here. Yeah, I was thinking... For some reason, it kind of maybe the era, the art, uh, it's certainly less action, but it reminded me of Son of the Demon, but it's much better than Son of the Demon. So I agree with you. We are definitely in the top half, which puts us that's that's above 60 because this this bit this board just keeps growing. Yeah, I think as enjoyable as it was, this is above Number 56, the Superman annual where Batman fights a Superman who's kind of gone a little too hard into forcing the world into disarmament and who accidentally kills Martian Manhunter. What about, okay, Batman the Spirit, number 46. That is better looking because it's Darwin Cook, but has nothing of it of consequence about it this is the first appearance of probably the most important bat villain of the 90s and odds i mean i i can think of very few bat villains who've been introduced since who are really anywhere near as important as bane only one guy broke the bat yep yeah, I would I would agree with that. Uh, higher than Batman the Spirit. What do you think about uh, Little Gotham at 39? Little Gotham is a ton of fun. But again, it doesn't have any anything to it other than it's fun. It's not significant. What about 36, Birth of the Demon, the origin of Ra's al Ghul? I think we might be starting to sort of hone in on where this probably belongs. I think as a foundational text, it's as important, is as important as Birth of the Demon, but I can't see putting this much higher than, I'd say Blink at 26 is a hard, oh, 
definitely not going higher than that. No, it's not going higher than 30. Demon's Quest, the first Ra's al Ghul, who is the last gigantically significant, I mean, maybe not, I mean, Croc is in between them. There's a few others who appear in between. But I think Ra's is still as, if not more important, a figure in the Batman mythos than Bane. All right, so we're basically looking in the 30s. Yeah, somewhere between 30 and 36. Okay, here's my pitch. This is our new number 33. Not above for the man who has everything, which while less of a Batman story is a tighter and more well-developed comic, but is probably above that Batman Adventures annual where you see the different shorts of the villains trying to go straight. Works for me. Okay, so this is our new number 33, The Vengeance of Bane. Speaking of first appearances and origins, our second story is The Sword of Azrael. This is Batman, Sword of Azrael, numbers one to four. The writer is Denny O'Neill, pencils by Joe Casada, inks by Kevin Nolan, colors by Laverne Kinzierski, letters by Ken Brusenak, and edited by Archie Goodwin and Bill Kaplan. The cover dates are October of 1992 to January of 1993. An angel falling out a window in Gotham sends Batman on a world tour involving ancient orders, demons, weapons dealers, and a young man who will change his life, the avenging angel Azrael. This is very early work from Joe Casada, an artist who will obviously become better associated with Marvel comics. But he, some of his earliest work, most of his earliest work was DC. It was a miniseries for the Hero of the Ray, a Legends of the Dark Knight annual, and then Sword of Azrael. Pretty sure Sword of Azrael is kind of the thing that put him on the map with that design of the Azrael armor, which today absolutely still stands up as really cool-looking costume. You know, written by Denny O'Neill. Talked about many Denny O'Neill stories on this show. You kind of gave us an, in- an inclination earlier. But I'm feeling you didn't vibe on this one as much. I No, I did not vibe as much. Like, we know nothing about Jean-Paul after this. Like, just the, the idea that his name was supposed to, like, evoke some emotion in us. Like, we get that on the last page. I am Jean-Paul, just like my father. Like, it's like, it's just, it fell flat for me. We know that he's a graduate student, but that's it. Right. I mean, this is a very shallow character in terms of what he is before he gets the suit. And certainly I know that Nightfall will go into him and show his deterioration and more of his, you know, rampant bloodshed. But I would have liked to see more of his training, more of his development. Give me the Jason Bourne story here, right? That's the whole idea behind this. He's supposed to have been conditioned by his father. It's all subliminal. It's all through hypnotism. And he just, he he doesn't know that he's this weapon for God. And yet, like, we don't really get any of that. So in many ways, I didn't understand the purpose of this story. As an origin for Azrael, it just doesn't work for me. As an origin for John Paul, that doesn't work. I hated the uh, the verbal tick that whatever that guy's name has that I Normal couldn't figure out was 
Yeah, I, that just irritated the shit out of me. I was very happy when this book was over. It is definitely not superior to Vengeance of Bane, no. This is a weirdly disjointed book with the narrative pattern of you've got one character telling a, a ver- narrating a part of the story and then end of their bit dovetails into another character's bit of narration that might be taking place slightly before or concurrent to or slightly after what's going on with the previous character and most of the characters are not terribly interesting i mean carlton leha the the villain the demon bis is a, a particularly one note villain he's a bastard for no other reason than he's a bastard i, I don't particularly care about leha and when he seemingly dies at the end, it's like, oh, okay, good for him, sort of, or good for us for not having to deal with him again. And we don't get a ton of the Order of Saint Dumas, and when we eventually get more of the Order of Saint Dumas in the Azrael ongoing, it's very different. Like it's really an order. There's monks and nuns, etc. And here it's just like it's these twelve rich guys who are the last members of the order, and it always kind of bugged me when we see the order in the Azrael ongoing. It's like, but wait, that's, that's not at all how it was established in sort of Azrael. I think O'Neill realized that, oh, he needed something more coherent for Azrael to have to fight. So he changed what the order was. Yeah, they do feel very much like compartmentalized silos of you know, old rich dudes who are just keeping in touch via satellite. That's the whole ability that, you know, they're able to track them down. So yeah, I would, I'm at least interested to see how that idea develops. Uh, but here it's, it's not much. Yeah. And Nomaz is not a particularly engaging character as Jean-Paul's sort of pseudo mentor. He's this weirdly designed little monster man. Troll. Yeah, he's very troll-like. And he's just sort of there to abuse Jean-Paul and scream about what Azrael should be. And it's always the same thing. Azrael is vengeance. Azrael is vengeance. He doesn't show mercy. He kills. He kills. He's vengeance. There's no progression of that character or how he interacts with, you know, Asriel. It's just, I don't know if, if maybe I would have liked this more if it had been two books instead of four. I would have liked them to have spent more time after Bruce is kidnapped by Leha with Jean-Paul, Namaz, and Alfred to have Alfred and Nomaz more play as the sort of devil and angel on Jean-Paul's shoulder, because that would have given us something to kind of latch onto to see how Alfred influenced this kid. And there's bits of that. You get little spots of it, of how Alfred is influencing him. And O'Neill writes a great Alfred. Alfred is at his sassy best here. But that's not enough to push this book over the edge into something more than what we get. I did like 
the scene where they they're trying to sweat Batman and he just uh, he just spits out poetry. Yes. It reminded me of uh, Hannibal Lecter and uh, giving them recipes. That makes sense that Bruce would have trained himself to resist that kind of mental influence. One thing that is an important little bit to note, we see Oracle here, Bruce contacting Barbara to research the Order of St. Dumas. This is fairly early in Barbara's time as Oracle. And while I don't necessarily think it's the first time we see her and Bruce interact in this way, it's very early because she would have just been coming off her earliest appearances as Oracle in Suicide Squad. So that that's historically significant. Quick question for you. And I Mm -hmm. don't know how this may or may not apply to our discussion. Was this series published under the code? Because I see nothing on the cover that says it was. And uh, who knows what version of DC made digitally. But I see the branding as Titan Books. So those those two things, maybe say in my mind, this is supposed to have been, you know, an adult-oriented book. It was not a Vertigo suggested for mature readers book. But looking at... At the cover of number one, the actual cover, I am not seeing code approval. This was probably the same sort of thing that Legends of the Dark Knight was, which was a non-code approved, but not necessarily a mature reader's title. So a PG-13 versus the PG of a code book or the R of a Vertigo title. I remember it coming out on nicer, heavier paper, too. That being said, I don't remember any exceptionally graphic books. I mean, Azrael does kill, but that's They're, fairly common for the books at the time. Seems Le- like Leha gorily beheads a guy. And when you see Azrael's Jean Paul's father get shot, the blood is pretty bloody, but it's not overly graphic either. All in all, I think this is. Well, not bad, not terribly memorable. The Azrael costume remains gorgeous. Both the original very armored one and the more angelic, terrifying Angel of Vengeance one that John Paul wears. But that's art-wise is the most significant thing. I think the art is very early in a very strong artist's career and thus still has Casada finding his footing. And Kevin Nolan is an inker who, when Nolan inks someone's work, you can tell it's Kevin Nolan. I don't think there's a lot left to say on this one, and we're going to have a lot to say on the final one. So unless you've got anything else, Will. I don't have anything else. That means it's time. But Batman, sort of Azrael on the big board. So not as high as Vengeance of Bane. Um, That's at 33. Right. Do you, do you have an opening bid on this one? Or do you, have a, um, a, 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 do you have a ceiling or a floor? While I did say that the art was kind of busy to me, it, it is very nice. Like, I just think that you could have toned a lot of it down and put some more focus um, where it needed to go. But it's not as bad artistically or it's not bad at all rather 
injustice at 65. I think we're definitely higher than that. Yes. So we're better than that. What about... Okay, here's one. Post-crisis origin of Jason Todd at 53. That's another origin story of a significant bat ally. That's the Max Allen Collins book, right? Yes. I think that's better. I agree. So now we've got it between 53 and 65. That's a, a much more limited span. I think I liked Going Sane at 56 more. The Joe Kerr story. Definitely more memorable. Absolutely. I think we can keep walking down. Superman 76. Give me a nugget on that. Uh, first Batman Superman team up. The, the origin of the Superman Batman with uh, the cruise ship. Oh, hmm. This probably has more substance than that. I'd be inclined to split those Superman books. Okay. I can see that. I can see being in between uh, the, the Superman annual that we mentioned before and that. So that would make this our new 58. That sounds good to me. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this would be time for you all to take a break, to pause as Matt readies himself to read the creators involved with Nightfall. You know what? This is nowhere near as bad as War Games last week. And so, not at all. I, I, I'll take that. But yeah, this one's going to be, this is going to be another long end. Our final story of the night is the story that our patreon backer of the evening specifically requested kyle wanted us to talk about nightfall act one the broken bat this is batman volume one numbers 491 to 497 and detective comics volume one numbers 659 to 663 the writers are doug mensch and chuck dixon with pencils by jim aparo norm brayfogle jim ballant and graham nolan Inks from Jim Aparo, Norm Brayfogle, Tom Mandrake, Bob Wyacek, Joe Rubenstein, Dick Giordano, and Scott Hanna. Colors by Adrian Roy. Letters by Richard Starkings, Tim Harkins, and John Costanza. And edited by Denny O'Neill, Scott Peterson, and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. The cover dates are April to July of 1993. The time has come. Bane has cracked open Arkham Asylum, and all its inmates are free to run through Gotham. Can a Batman, already exhausted, stop some of his most heinous foes? And what can he do when he reaches the end of it all and Bane is waiting? So let me stay here at the beginning that this thing has been collected in, I don't know, probably 15 different ways. I am in the process of almost finishing my print collection. I, at one point, got the wrong volume from Amazon, which I think, strangely enough, I might have gotten this volume that I'm reading digitally. And so I don't know how efficient, like this particular, I think this is one of the larger volumes is in like collecting everything. I had to ask Matt specifically where to stop reading in this. This was like 600 or something pages. And yet, strangely enough, I feel like it didn't quite get everything like I, I remember reading and uh, a couple of points and uh, different mentions of riddler being venomized I, yeah. I did not see that my collection that i started with begins with vengeance of bane and then it goes into 491 yeah there's three or four issues of batman 
488 to 490 that are additional sort of prequels that we would eventually read as one arc. And 488 is Azrael comes to Gotham. 489 is Bane and Killer Croc. And 490 is the Riddler and the Venom stuff. Yeah, why would you not collect those in this trade? That doesn't make any sense to me. The War Games trade had fucking everything. But this... That, those seemed like some crucial beats. Yeah, you'd think that they would have d- either done a prequel, like a Nightfall prequel trade that would have had all of sort of Azrael. You would have put Vengeance of Bane in there. You would have put those issues in there. And you actually would have done Batman 483 through 490 because 483 is the first mention of the exhaustion kind of kicking in. And uh, the helicopter crash, I think mentioned, and I think that was in Sword of Azrael, mentioned Vertigo, which I thought was a tie-in that Batman had been complaining about. So I like these little nuggets sprinkled throughout. And, and I will say in the alternative print collection that I started and have almost finished, there is a prelude to Nightfall collection. So maybe that addresses some of these problems instead of the big, fat volume uh, that I'm reading digitally. But anyway, I thought that was weird. Thanks for clearing that up. Now that you've got me, I'm kind of looking it up, but I'm curious to see Prelude to Nightfall. Yeah, Vengeance of Bane, 484 through, maybe it was 484, I was misremembering, 484 to 491 of Batman and Detective 654 through 658. Not sort of Azrael, interestingly enough. But I think that has started to be traded with the Azrael ongoing. Like sort of Azrael is put there at the beginning of the big Azrael collections. So that might be where that is being placed. Oh, for, right. 483 was a one-off. It, was, it is start 484. Yeah, that's the Black Mask story that started. It was the first indication of Bruce's exhaustion. This is a big one. I mean, this is one of the most well-known Batman stories of all time and a huge one sales-wise. And early work on Batman from Kelly Jones, all those Kelly Jones covers throughout. Oh yeah, I was going to jump in after those credits and say, oh, covers by Kelly Jones. Yeah. Don't think I didn't min- uh, I didn't notice that. And there are some great covers in there. The one for 491, it sticks out in your mind. I mean, the one for 497 with Bane breaking Batman. And the one for 663 of Batman, just his head above water and the rats is. Yeah, there's a reason why we see the cover of Batman breaking so often and not the interior art, because the cover is like a thousand times better. The interior art is perfectly good Jim Aparo art. It's very, I like Jim Aparo art. It's a very DC house style. As, as an impactful moment, as a singular moment in comics book history, it, not, it, it just has too much going on, right? It's got the, the giant sound effect. It's got the, the orange background. Like, if you were trying to do a dramatic moment, it's too much. The cover is more evocative. I will not argue that point, but... I think the art in this volume in general is very workmanlike, very strong. All of these are consistent. Yes. Even with the fact that we have a few different artists, they all exist in 
if not the same style, a good continuity. And they're Bray Fogel, Aparo, and Nolan are three guys who define the 80s and 90s of Batman comics. And I mean, Aparo goes back to the 70s. And I mean, Jim Ballant only does the one issue and will go on to draw 70-something consecutive issues of Catwoman before going on to do Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose, his creator-owned book that is a thing. But he's a Oof. legendary good girl artist. I mean, that's his thing. I'm really glad in some ways that we've read this directly after War Games. I look forward to next week, presumably when we're not reading uh, 50 issues or something. But War Games is a crossover that just doesn't work, right? The art we just talked about was inconsistent. The narrative just kind of just ekes along. The issues, you could not just pick up one of those issues and read it separately from everything else happening. I think the real beauty in Nightfall is that, yes, it's telling this longer story. It's telling the story of Bane really coming to Batman, uh, really coming to Gotham and is here to fuck up Batman. But each individual issue is its own story. Right. And it's a, it's not very complicated. And I think I always love the trope of Batman looking for a conspiracy and there not being one. Bane didn't have some giant master plan. He was just like, mm, blow the shit out of Arkham and bad stuff I know is going to happen. Right. There was not some master plan. You know, it's not what we saw in City of Bane where he's like orchestrating all of these little pieces around everywhere. No, he just blows the blows the fucking you know loony bin up and these guys take care of the rest and you know again each one of these stories is batman trying his best to recapture one of these inmates and i love how it progresses right you don't start with batman going after joker and scarecrow you start with what is it uh the mad hatter and film mad hatter Hatter. Yeah, tell me about Film Freak. I had never heard or seen Film Freak before. I would have learned everything there is to know about him. He's a fairly minor Batman villain. Uh, oh, he shows up in late 300s, I believe. So he's maybe about 100 issues old, so seven or eight years. But appeared very rarely and he's a dude obsessed with movies and he would kill people in movie themed manner oh i love it yeah i just looked up his wikipedia page because it's been a while because he's not particularly memorable he committed every crime known in films and the gotham newspapers dubbed him the film freak one of his signatures was a pair of earrings in the shape of film cans Film Freak stalked Julia Pennyworth in a manner similar to that of the character Norman Bates in the movie Psycho. (laughs) Yeah, he's not a very well-known villain because he's not... Because he dies right here. I mean, he gets off. There's eventually, you know, another Film Freak. But I guarantee you we could do a Film Freak episode and get every other appearance of Film Freak squeezed into that one episode. Oh, I'd love it. I'd love it. I'm here for it. We will look into that at some point. Sometime when we want to celebrate and when we need a nice short episode. We're spending a lot of time thinking about Film Freak, a a minor, at best, Batman villain. 
film freak shows up and dies this is a crossover that bumps firefly up from a fairly minor like an incredibly minor bat villain into a solid b-list villain he's a recognizable villain at this point people know firefly because he's popped up in animation and he recurs throughout the comics regularly after this he hadn't appeared for six or seven years before this and then a decade before that but he got a redesign here and he becomes a fairly substantial threat yeah and he's treating uh treated with some seriousness in the story like it takes multiple issues to finally bring him in and it takes both batman and robin to uh to to do the job and his story is i mean as believable as superheroes and supervillains go uh you know he's he's burning down all these places that he couldn't go when he was in the uh in the orphanage and i thought that was uh, you know just enough just enough backstory like we're not dwelling on firefly as all of this other stuff is happening in gotham but it's just enough to get you interested in the character we see each of these villains who get a spotlight is as you said we get it's it's a build because you know issue the first one is mad hatter and then it's the ventriloquist and amygdala who oh are, my god i loved the ventriloquist in this story oh yeah oh my god it was so good yeah with the with a sock puppet and then a bunch of other puppets because he doesn't have scarface and he's clearly at ends it makes a lot of sense with who he is and it's like wow he's just gonna get kind of loopy okay so again chuck dixon loathsome human being but darned if you do darned if you don't that's sock humor i fucking love that ventriloquist with a sock puppet it's just oh my god it's so beautiful warmed my heart i gotta agree on that one i I remember not getting that joke when i read this when i was 12 but (laughs) now that i get it it's like oh that's pretty good i like that uh, and the ventriloquist with a sock, a duck, a cop. Uh, was there anything else? I think he might have you know, looked at a few others when he was in the toy store. But I think those are the three that he really uses throughout. It was weird kind of having these comic relief moments, but I didn't I didn't think that they were too zany. And I absolutely love them. <laughs> You know, you get mounting, rising tension, and then that brings it down a little so you can then ratchet it up even higher. And then after that is Zaz, who's sort of a climax for a little bit because Zaz is a serious threat. And this is early Zaz. This is before Zaz was also somewhat neutered and made it a sort of generic, like weird slasher guy. This is the Zaz who gets into your head. And has that lectory sort of thing going. What makes Zaz such a physical threat? What what makes him so tough aside from him being just a nutty slasher guy? It's that he's just another guy who's trained himself to be weirdly tough. And oh. also the fact that Zaz's whole thing that you don't get a ton of here and you don't think you get the details of his origin until sl- shortly after nightfall to begin with. He has that 
complete disconnect that some true sociopaths do that he believes he's the only real person which is why he calls everybody a zombie yeah he believes that everyone else is in this sort of zombified state and only at the moment when he kills them do they actually become real which is a cool little touch on what his psychopathy is and no adaptation of Zaz has gotten that part of him and a lot of Zaz's stories don't get that part of him we will eventually read that first Zaz story the last arkham which is is a favorite of mine but then you get the issue where bruce is pretty much out of it and you get croc and bane and then into cornelius stirk and the joker stirk is a character we saw in widening gyre and who we don't see a lot nowadays but who was a pretty big deal in the late 80s early 90s and from there, you get your first Firefly confrontation with Joker and Riddler sort of in the back. Joker and Riddler. Well, yeah, Joker and Riddler and Scarecrow all in the background. Then Ivy, then back to Firefly and Riddler, then Joker and Scarecrow, then Birdtrog and Zombie, and then Bane himself. It does rising tension really well. Although not a fan of this Ivy. We're still in that sex pot mind control ivy and we're not into an ivy with many layers no no she didn't seem to add much to this story and this is eddie at his lowest this is riddler really in the pathetic mold again i wish i could have seen that one cool part of him in this story as you mentioned it before dr simpson flanders oh that name and that that was just Mostly Dixon, but I think Mensch did do some of the Flanders stuff. Lampooning modern, at the time, talk radio and talk television. I'm saying, and so are you. He's a, I think you said he's a straw man. He's, he's yeah. just there. And he pops up occasionally moving forward as, a, as the butt of a joke. And eventually goes nuts and is, you know, has to be taken, taken out by, I think, Robin and Nightwing at one point or another, right before No Man's Land. Because he, like, leads a mob rampaging through the streets and they have to knock him out. He never is, is any, he's not a real threat or anything. Why would you be compassionate toward either the mentally ill or criminals, Matt? Why would you, why would you do that? Maybe because you're human and so were they. Another thing that we see that is part of this era of that books is a level of cohesion with the supporting cast with GCPD that you don't see now that the cops that you see here are the same cops throughout both of the books. It's Gordon Bullock Montoya and Kitch. They are the cops. You just keep seeing and they keep doing stuff. You see Alfred, you see Lucius Fox, you briefly see Leslie, you see Dr. Consolving Bruce's doctor who will become important very important when we get to uh, Night Quest, the second part of the Nightfall, Night Quest, Night's End cycle. This is long, and while there's a lot going on, it never feels busy. No. This feels like it was very well planned out. And all along, you see Bane just watching and patiently playing out his game and letting Batman exhaust himself, waiting for that moment to strike. I thought the final issue 
the the breaking of the bat was much more interesting a read than the death of Superman. I, I think Nightfall is first, right? No, death of Superman is first. Huh. But that was so focused on action, right? That's that's a story that plays out over however many issues that is. And it's just one big, long fight. In this, the fighting is secondary. It's Batman basically summarizing everything that has happened and flashing back and just thinking like, God damn it, would he just kill me already? And it's much more dramatic. And that is done really realistically might not be the right word but it's really well handled as you watch bruce who's already at a low ebb at the beginning sliding down and still refusing help regularly he's always telling tim to stay in the car stay away i'll deal with this myself and he pays the price for it and each of the villains is many of them recognize it as things are going on that he's he's losing a step and uh if bullock can <sighs> notice that you're not operating at uh, at full capacity if bullock says hey go home and get some sleep Oosh. the only reason why he's probably able to face down the joker and scarecrow is that scarecrow gassed him and he instead of getting afraid he sees his worst fear which was the death of jason todd which remember fear for sale we remember that yeah since it already happened all it does is shoot him full of adrenaline and anger and he just nearly beats the joker to death was that their first confrontation outside of the un there are a couple in between one he joker comes back in batman 450 451 and after that, it's like a couple of like, you know, brief cameos. But this is probably the second Joker story after Death in the Family. Or second actual confrontation between the two of them. So it's still early. And when he first sees Joker, he thinks of it or realizes the Joker is moving forward with his plan. He thinks of him as Jason's killer. That is the thing that's driving Bruce when it comes to the Joker at this point. I like how Tim is written. You know, Tim is there and he's trying to help and Bruce is just not having any of it. And Tim gets sloppy in a couple of places because Tim is still pretty early as Robin. Tim became Robin at 457. So he's been Robin for less than four years of comic book time, of real time. So months of comic book time. Again, when Bullock reams you out for doing something dumb... You know you did something dumb. This is the guy who nearly walked into the exploding mayor's mansion without thinking about it. All right, so explain to me exactly what Tim did there. Because I remember reading that scene and thinking that, oh, well, he just, you know, he stopped the, the bomb from going off. Like, I, I didn't understand quite his transgression. I, I see. I don't think it's that much either. I think the fact that he pounced on Riddler and kicked him before spraying the epoxy on his hand could have meant that Riddler could have dropped the detonator before he was able to epoxy his hand. <laughs> That's the closest I could come up with. And of course, you know, it's not a real bomb. So I mean, we do Pay see... attention to me. Oh yeah. And we see quite a bit of Mayor Armand Kral here, who was 
I getting think, his what, shit fucked. Yeah, what is it, Will? You said Gotham mayors are either corrupt or incompetent. Or incompetently corrupt. Yeah. Crawl is probably just incompetent. He's a politician. Like, he's not on the take or anything, but he is very much a politician. And is just a real bastard. So he, he he's not a crook, but or he's no more corrupt than any other politician is. But uh, Joker and Scarecrow just keep him as a plaything for several issues. Mm-hmm. Having him call in, you know, fake requests or I guess real requests, but requests that they are requesting. One thing that I will say is that looking at this, this was clearly written in a time before trades were something people were thinking about regularly. There are some conversations that happen every issue or every other issue. Bruce and Tim recap what they think is going on, who they think is behind it repeatedly throughout these 12 comics. And nowadays that conversation would happen once and you would be assumed to have read the earlier parts. But now it's, it's repeated over and over again because there was that mindset that people might pick up a random issue and not be able to find the earlier stuff. And by God, we're DC, so we're not doing recap pages. Oh, do you remember the name of the police puppet that Ventriloquist had? O'Hara? Yep, Officer O'Hara. Yeah. Uh, Again, delightful. And we do see one scene of Azrael seriously beating up a couple of burglars, which is an indication of where he's going to be going as Batman as the story progresses. There was not much of him in this part of the story. No. Which I think is a little strange. Yeah, there's two or three scenes. And we've yeah. gotten quite a bit of him in 488 and 489. Some of the lead up stuff that we don't see here. That we'll have to do at some point in the not too distant future. Just those three issues that led into this with those gorgeous Travis Charest covers. One of my favorite scenes in this is right at the beginning of 663 as Batman is saving Mayor Crawl and kind of grabs onto a ladder in this flooding sewer or flooding tunnel and he has to swim underground to find the underground underwater to find the access tunnel and he's pushing himself and he's pushing himself and you see the determination of what he is and you get to that point and it's like oh yeah he's done He's done at this point. And he comes out and they're a bird trogging zombie. And again, it's only by getting angry that he's able to take them out only to find Bane waiting for him at Wayne Manor. Yeah. Poor, poor Bruce doesn't have the strength to change out of his suit. He just throws a robe over uh, on top of it. And can you imagine like that character physically mentally exhausted dragging his body up to the manor presumably to go to bed and you open the door and it's like oh shit it's bane alfred unconscious on the ground and bane waiting that's where that issue cut off right yeah it ends with a splash page of bane just pointing at him like you know wrestling promo still which is appropriate with bane's luchador mask that's a hell of a hook. By the way, this is early with Montoya. She's still a uniformed officer. 
but but she comes out of this. I'm pretty sure she gets her detective's shield not too long after this story. She was never detective on the show, correct? Not until the new Batman adventures. When it comes back nah. in those later episodes, yes, she's a detective by then, but I'm pretty sure she's uniformed maybe at the very end because I think she probably, after she takes out Harley and Ivy at the end of Harley and Ivy, I think she's still uniformed there. But she might show up as a detective towards the end, but she's definitely a detective in the new Batman adventures. But there's a lot to like in this book. I mean, Norm Brayfogle's art, he is one of my definitive Batman artists, as is Aparo. It's it's smooth, it's great storytelling. So, you you oh, get the cavalier. Yes, a brief appearance by the cavalier who Batman just takes out like the punk that he is. A lot of this 90s stuff does not hold up. Nightfall does. Nightfall absolutely holds up, I think. Sure, there's some stuff in it that's a little long in the tooth, a little long-winded. There's very a little, little Chuck Dixon-y. Yeah, there's very little problematic other than Bird using the word sissy at one point. That was the one thing that I noticed is problematic. But aside from that, this holds up really well. I believe that means it's time to put Batman Nightfall Breaking of the Bat on the big board. So, okay, this is definitely the above. I mean, as good as Vengeance of Bane was, this is better. I've got a spot for you. I've okay. been I've been staring at this for 20 minutes. 15. Sold. <laughs> Don't even, yeah. It's, I mean, New Frontier has much less Batman, but is still friggin' New Frontier. But it is definitely better than Crimson Mist. That is a perfect spot for this book. And if you out there have not checked in on the big board lately, and you're thinking about you know how tough this is to crack, say, the top 20, that just pushed Wonder Woman, the Haikatia, out of the top 20. And now... We're going to see next week where we might have another book that could reach those rarefied airs because we are going to be celebrating the end of James Tinian's the fourth's superb Joker series. We're going to return to the clown prince of crime and read three more Joker stories, including what many considered the gold standard, Alan Moore and Brian Boland's The Killing Joke. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names. It's a mouthful, June. Joshua Wheel, Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Kyle Still, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of New Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing.
and stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.